Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week, the young activists pushing the state and nation to address climate change. Last December, dozens of students rallied in downtown Tucson as part of global protests to raise awareness about the climate emergency. Can I get one loud cheer because our earth is on fire and we're here to do something about it. Can everybody go, yeah! yeah! In the last year, the Arizona Youth Climate Strike has been organizing protests demanding more action on climate change. Daniel Casanova and Stella Heflin are co-directors of the Tucson chapter. They say their movement is following the lead of Swedish activist Greta Thunberg. So our main legislative goals are to get a climate action plan created for each city and for the state of Arizona as a whole. And sort of as a step before that, we would like each city and the state to declare a climate emergency. Um, we also are trying to get as many politicians as possible to send a no fossil fuel pledge, which would have them refuse to take money from fossil fuel lobbyists or the industry itself over $200. What a climate action plan is, is a systematic approach that a city takes saying, okay, climate change is real, which is the first step. They acknowledge it through the climate emergency. And then the second step is they make the plan of how they're going to address it. So they set goals. And currently in Arizona, there are two cities that already have climate action plans, the city of Tempe and the city of Flagstaff. Um, and we're just trying to spread that throughout the state and then hopefully eventually get the actual state to adopt such a plan. What are some of the things you want to see the city of Tucson, for example, uh, or even the state of Arizona put in their climate action plan? What's a realistic goal that you want to see in there? So in Arizona, one of the biggest issues that we're facing is an overallocated Colorado River. And with climate change, scientists are projecting that, you know, we face the very dry reality that someday we might run out of water. So seeing more you know, advancements and progress with reclaimed water is something that the city of Tucson is already doing, but should do more of making more plans. You know, if we ever face water shortages, who's going to face the cuts? What's the best way to do that? I'd say the other big thing is solar energy. Um, we live in southern Arizona. We have the most sunlight and we really should have solar panels on every house. Um, there's a lot of legislation that's already been passed, but I'd say we can keep moving forward until we have a completely solar solar energy. We should be yeah. <laughs> the solar powerhouse of the United yes, States. Yes, there we go. <laughs> I mean, we're in the desert in one of the sunniest places in the entire world. There's no reason why Arizona shouldn't be at the forefront of solar. And to an extent it is, but you know, even more so. I know one of our listeners out there will hear this and say, okay, that's great, but I can't afford to put solar panels on my roof. Um, you know, the finances just aren't there. So how do you how do you answer that and how do you work with that reality that not everybody can afford it? I think it's becoming a more and more increasingly affordable. Um, so I think there will be a day where more people can hopefully afford solar. But if you can't afford it now, I mean, don't fret. Just do the small actions that you can do to be part of the solution. You know, take shorter showers, bike to work, you know, the usual. All right. Don't get caught up in, well, I can't afford it, so I'm not going to do anything. There are always things you can do, and there are always steps. Go to a climate strike, you know, for example. You brought up climate strike. Uh, you all have organized a couple of them. What do you think the outcome of, of those actions have been? 
Um, so I think the main goal of the strikes is to raise awareness. People hear about it. People come. People see their politicians speaking. People get involved. Um, and I think that is our main goal there. Um, I feel like one of the big outcomes has been a general awareness um, of the politicians know that the people of Tucson want a climate action. I think the climate the politicians have really taken us seriously and through because we are able to get garner press attention and we're able to get people to come out and support this action. We get people passionate, riled up about climate, and with that passion, we start getting noticed. Politicians say, "Okay, this is an important issue for Arizonans and for Americans. How how can we address our our constituents, you know?" And these past two strikes have been focused on getting the city of Tucson to declare a climate emergency, which they already have in the works. So I think they have been very productive, and they will continue to do, to uh, to be productive. Critics of the youth climate strike movement all over the world, all over the country, always give the same criticism: "You're just kids. You know, you're you're not old enough to to have world experience." How do you answer that? That it's true. I am not old enough to have world experience, but for that very reason, that's why I'm doing this. You know. I want to be old enough where I get to the point where I can say that, oh, I have the experience. You know what I'm saying? But maybe, you know, the IPCC says that we only have 10 years. Maybe I won't even get there. That's why I'm fighting for my future. Right. It's if we don't do this now, who will? Again, 10 years. We are working towards our degrees. We are working towards being in the field and making a difference. But we might not get the chance to do that. And that is the honest reality. And I would also say, look to Greta Thunberg, look to a 16-year-old addressing the United Nations. And we are old enough to be making an impact. And we are. So what does success look like? Is there a morning you all wake up and say, we did it? And what does that look like? Looking at the history of the climate movement, starting from like the 1960s until now, I don't think there will ever be a day where we can say, all right, you know, let's put the the picket signs down, we're done. There's always going to be something to fight for. But I think um, it's the small victories that we're going to have to celebrate along the way. So the day we've rejoined the Paris Climate Accord, the day that, you know, we're finally solar, I mean, things like that. And no solution is perfect. And I think that's something that a lot of people, they criticize environmentalists saying, oh, well, solar uses, you know, lithium ion or something. And, and it's that that's not perfect, you know, and it's true. But the analogy that I always like to give is that sustainability is like jumping off a plane, you know, <laughs> and you can either jump off the plane without a parachute and follow the ground real, like super fast, or you can jump off the plane with a parachute and that's sustainability. How fast do you want to hit the ground? Eventually, you know, we all get to the point where, I mean, that's just nature, you know, but how we're going to get there, that's what we fight. And I think that's one small victory at a time. And going off what Daniel said, I mean, I think our goals are going to be ever shifting, ever changing as we make progress. But I think, I don't know, for me, at least what success would look like is a global acknowledgement of the crisis more so than there already has been. Because as Greta Thunberg has kind of pointed out via social media and via her speeches, we've been doing this now for the movement has been has existed for like two years now and nothing things have changed. But drastic global change, the change that we need in the next 10 years has not happened. And I think that if once we see politicians moving and moving at a fast pace, that is where we will say that we are starting to see success. 
We're talking with Daniel Casanova and Stella Heflin with the Arizona Youth Climate Strike. So what's motivating your generation? You mentioned Greta. She's 16. You all are students at the University of Arizona. What's motivating this generation on climate? One of our co-leads, Kyle Klein, likes to say that our generation is going to be the first that will not have the privilege of dying old, of old age. We will be the generation that dies of climate change and climate change-related effects. And so I think that is what's motivating a lot of us is a future that we might not get to see. I think also we are seeing as we as we have grown up over the past 18 years we are seeing climate change in the extreme um, tropical storms in the extreme flooding in islands disappearing and so i think that is definitely weighing on the psyche of our generation i mean climate change is everywhere i mean it's on the screens that we watch but even more i mean for many people across the world it's it's a it's a day-to-day reality it's a quotidian aspect of life i mean for me I was born in Mexico City, a city that, you know, I just went back and visited this December. Sometimes it's just so polluted, you can't even see the nearby mountains. My brother has asthma. I mean, it's, it's these personal things that people say, hey, something's not right. When you talk to your friends, your, your siblings who are not involved with the youth climate strike, what do they think about what you're doing? Do they think you guys are crazy? Or are they really happy you're doing it, but they're just not involved? What's the reaction from people your own age? I think that most people our own age are incredibly supportive. Um, at least that's the experience that I've had. I mean, I know that part of it has to do with where I'm living, the fact that I'm on a college campus, and the fact that the people I'm friends with tend to share ideology with me, and my family does as well. Um, but I think on the whole, our generation recognizes the importance broadly, even if their politics don't agree with ours, they understand the urgency and they understand the need. And I think we've seen a lot of support. I think honestly, most of the criticism has come from generations that are not our own. I mean, it is true. There are members of our own generation that are also climate deniers and who may think, well, I mean, they're staining the generation. This is all not true. But on the whole, I think even them, I mean, they're more open-minded. And I think that's the power of the youth, you know, just being able to hear different perspectives and not being so so firmly grounded. You all are getting ready to organize a couple of events, one b- right before the presidential preference election in Arizona, and then one for Earth Day. What are those events? So we're still in the planning stages for those two events, um, but we definitely do have some ideas. For the presidential primaries, we're thinking about having a big educational campaign. We're not sure how that's going to look like yet, but that's what we're planning. For Earth Day, we're thinking about doing a massive strike here in Tucson. Um, It is the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, and we are trying to get the biggest uh, support possible from the population here in Tucson. Um, We want it to be the biggest strike yet. And just for people who who have missed the strikes, describe what a strike is, because maybe not all of our listeners know. It can take several forms. You know, some strikes are more interactive than others. I mean, what, what our strikes normally look like, it's it's quite exciting, actually. I mean, you go there and it's this energy, you know, it's it's very inspirational. You have hundreds of people there and they're all holding signs. You see that. I mean, it's it's very inspiring because you see that, wow, I'm not the only one that cares. There are people out there that are fighting for the same things and you get there and you hear the speeches, you feel the energy. Maybe you'll go on a march or something, but it's just, it's honestly one of the best experiences of my life. Are you doing 
other kinds of organizing or activism outside of strikes? Yes, we are. We actually consider that very important because while the strikes are raising awareness, there is action that needs to be taken that's not just protesting. And so one of the things that we are doing, we are actually a lobbying organization. We have been meeting with politicians, talking to them about climate policy and urging them to be more drastic and also move quicker with the climate bills that they have in place. We're starting a campaign for more education and, and voter registration in schools. I mean, we're we're doing a lot of things. We're just trying to get this out to the people, you know, more than just our generation, because anyone can come to our strikes. Yes, we're the Arizona Youth Climate Strike, but we're we're transgenerational because this is an issue that should be important to everybody. All right. Well, thank you both for sitting down with us. Thank, thank you. you. That was Stella Heflin and Daniel Casanova, co-leads of the Tucson chapter of the Arizona Youth Climate Strike. We contacted Tucson Mayor Rahino Romero's office to ask if the city has made progress in creating a climate change action plan, something Romero supported as a candidate. In a statement, Romero said she's in the process of hiring an environmental and climate policy advisor that will work with community stakeholders to draft a comprehensive climate action plan. That hire is expected to be completed in the next few weeks. In 2018, Pima County approved a new seven-year sustainability plan. It sets targets to reduce carbon emissions within county operations by 50 percent by 2025. Frank Sesno has a long history as a journalist and storyteller. He spent 21 years with CNN, where he served as White House correspondent, anchor, and Washington bureau chief. When he left CNN, Sesno says he wanted to focus on those coming up the ranks. I find the teaching next generation storytellers unbelievably inspiring and energizing, and I find still doing it myself very relevant and an opportunity to sort of keep my creative hat on. Sesno now directs George Washington University's School of Media and Public Affairs. He visited the University of Arizona last fall to talk about why he created Planet Forward, a student reporting project focused on how we're dealing with the impacts of climate change. Sesno says critical environmental journalism is needed more than ever. How in not very many years, when we have 10 billion people on the planet from the seven point whatever we have now, and we need maybe twice as much energy, 60%, 70% more food, 40% more, how are we gonna do that? Water, how are we gonna do that? How can we do that? And um, so Planet Forward was born. It is a multimedia storytelling platform uh, where we engage students from across the country. We have Planet Forward correspondents. They're all students. They are charged with generating four stories per year from their campus or their communities where they look into and convey the story of what is being done. What are the great ideas, inventions, innovations that can move the planet forward? What is being tried? What could scale that could make this changing, challenged planet a livable, sustainable place in the lifetimes of these young people who are going to inherit it and lead it. So you're working with the next generation of, of journalists. What about this generation of journalists? How do they write stories, be it in the newspaper, on TV, radio, online, in all those formats that are engaging and get people to pay attention to climate change? I think it's changing very dramatically and rapidly. This has been driven by a variety of, of, of shifts and realities. 
a changing demographic. Uh, young people are pressing this um, in ways we haven't seen. Greta Thunberg and the um, you know, student strike movement across the country, not unlike uh, the March for Our Lives movement. So young people have found that social media empowers them in ways that earlier generations of young people um, could not have imagined because it didn't exist. Yes, you could have a sit-in in the principal's office or you could have a demonstration, but you couldn't connect globally. You couldn't get you know, movie stars to see your movement and, and, and give you money and suddenly you've got you know, a national or global movement. So that's one thing, demographics. Secondly is um, extreme weather and perceived events and how they are connecting and how science actually increasingly is able to connect uh, to tie them to climate change itself. Um, uh, we were talking earlier, uh, the Arizona Republic had a, this recent front page story that just flat out said, you know, Arizona is um, hot, dry state pursues solutions as planet warms, climate 2020. Um, the other big change as we go into this election year that the certainly the Democratic candidates are going to make climate a front and center issue. It's not on the top tier of people's priorities, but it's enough of a priority for enough people that it's a, it's a, it's a motivator, it's an activator, or at least that's their calculus. And then finally, and I think it's important to say this, um, Donald Trump's and, the, and the, this administration's rollback has been welcomed by the president's base, but it's mobilized the opposition. And so these things come together in a very profound way. And by the way, the free market speaks here too, because virtually every corporate leader I've spoken to, when they look at next gen, whether it's millennials and Gen Z consumers, they're building into their expectations and what they're finding a much greater sensibility towards sustainability and climate change. And they, are, they, are, they realize that they have to, many of them anyway, those who speak about it, and a lot of them speak about it very openly, that they're marketing to that and they're actually making business decisions around that. When you mention priorities for voters, as you said, climate is not in the top. Is it a responsibility of journalists to keep doing those stories and try and raise it? I'm not sure it's a responsibility of journalists to have an agenda as to you know whether the climate issue should be um, a higher uh, uh, issue. I'm a little bit old school on this, believing that a journalist's job is to cover what's happening, not to try to make something happen. But I think that we would all agree that the discussion of climate change uh, has ratcheted up from scientists, from governments, from corporate interests, and from citizens. Ask somebody who lives near the coast um, what's happened to their insurance rates. Their insurance companies have calculated in more extreme weather, more uh, danger of flooding, and insurance premiums have gone way up. Ask uh, businesses, uh, some of them um, delicate businesses, about where they're building and how they're building. And if they're building in coastal areas, how they're you know, taking that into consideration. So I think that there's a fundamentally different landscape out there now. Uh, it hasn't transformed. There are plenty of people who say, not so fast, it's not human-induced, it's too expensive. Some even say it's a hoax. But if you look at public polling, there's a very small number that, that it flat out rejects this. What's very interesting to me is the very clear disconnect between the public and the political class. The 
public overwhelmingly now accepts that there is human-induced climate change. And in fact, there was a new poll, and I forget the number, so I'm not going to try to pull it out of my head, um, that a, a growing number see it as a crisis or a climate emergency. There was a polling that looked at that. And that's a, that's a plurality to a majority, and, 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 and that changes the dynamic. What brought that change around? It wasn't that long ago where you could talk to the public and they'd say, oh, a two-degree uh, Celsius change in the climate where scientists were saying that's the big problem. They say, oh, two degrees. Two degrees is nothing. But now the public understands that two degrees is a big deal. What Was there a moment that it changed? No, I don't think there was a moment, but I think there has you know, I've often said this about media. People say, well, you know, you're reporting these things and are you trying to change minds? The media are one part of, of what people absorb that either sets an oppression, imparts information, or changes minds. There are neighbors. There's your church. There's your work. There's your spouse. There's your kids. There's your friends. And there's your experience. If you live in Arizona, you know it's gotten hotter. Period. Full stop. If you live in California, you know it's gotten hotter and drier because there are more fires and they are claiming more homes and costing more. If you live in Florida, you know that there's sunshine flooding in certain cities and you know that the hurricanes have become much more expensive because there's more development and in some cases they've been hit harder. If you listen or watch the news or read, you see what happened in Puerto Rico. You see what happened in the Caribbean and elsewhere. You see what happened in the Bahamas. Um, so not all of these things can be tied directly to climate change. Causality remains a bit elusive, but people are absorbing this, and over time, they are recognizing what is taking place. You can, you can see the, 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 the receding glaciers. You can see the melting Arctic ice with your own eyes. I think that's what's changing. When you're dealing with the next generation of journalists, uh, how do you teach them how to report on this without getting stuck in the weeds and the data, which can be compelling but isn't always as interesting? How do you teach them how to tell that story? They have to be storytellers. They have to find um, compelling characters. They have to recognize that no matter how they tell their story in a more challenging environment, that story still needs to be infused with the most important elements of both storytelling and journalism. Storytelling needs to be interesting. It needs to have a beginning and a middle and an end. There needs to be creative tension in it or whatever it's going to be, right? Journalism, the information has to be solid. It needs to be vetted. It needs to be fact-checked. It needs to be attributed. It needs to come from a source that is trusted, not with an agenda. There needs to be transparency so that readers, viewers, listeners know what they're getting and from where. For those who can put those two things together, to combine intellect and imagination with thoughtful and purposeful storytelling that can really illuminate, wow, there's a lot here, and this is a great beat. The reason I love this story as a story so much is as we think about how we're going to move forward, it's not about environmentalism or tree hugging or any of that stuff. It's about how are we going to live in a place where there are more people with less space perhaps and fewer resources and a hotter place where we're, we've urbanized and how are we going to invent our way out of this? Are we going to invent our way out of this? I mean, there's genuine you know, suspense in this story, right? 
but I'm actually uh, pretty optimistic about it, and that's why I think it's a good story, because there's so many smart people, so much great technology, so many interesting ideas um, that we can do it if we've got the political will. Is there a story that's come out of Planet Forward, one of your student journalists from across the country, that stands out, that's, that's something good? There are many. Uh, we encourage our students um, to go find, as I say, the innovators and the people who are trying to invent the future. So a group of students went up to New York. This is a few years ago. They were very enterprising. And they had heard that the Empire State Building had been um, renovated and had been brought up to energy standards that are quite remarkable. And they stood in the shadow of the Empire State Building with the camera looking up at them and looking up into the distance. And they got out of the way and they asked a series of, of citizens, how many windows in the Empire State Building? And there were these wonderful New York-accented, Yankee baseball cap-wearing answers that you would only find in New York, as they guessed anywhere from 200 to 3,000 or whatever it was. And this, they, the students provided us with the right answer and then went into this wonderful explanation, fascinating, about how, how this building, this iconic building, had been brought up to standards, which included replacing every window in the building. And the windows were replaced with double-glazed glass with an, with an argon gas in between so that it would stop cold air from infiltrating through the glass in the wintertime and hot air, or at least slow it, in the summertime. It reduced the energy, the costs of the building. It made the building more attractive to rent. And the company, Tony Malkin, who, who the company that managed it, suddenly rents out the Empire State Building. So here are these students. They found this wonderful story. They told it with great attitude. They built all sorts of wonderful information into it. And anybody who watches, who thinks about windows and argon gas? Silly story, maybe, but it's an example of how, through storytelling, we can highlight this genius that we're going to need to harness to invent that very uncertain future. All right. Thanks for sitting down with us. Oh, gosh. It's a pleasure. Thanks. That was Frank Sesno, creator of Planet Forward, a student climate change reporting project at George Washington University. You can find links to the reporting on our website. And that's the buzz for this week. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Ariana Brocious is the show's producer and editor. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Duncan Moon is the interim news director. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.